HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Two percent, two percent, two percent. Uh, the two percent's right over here. Oh, hey, Jenna. I didn't know you shopped here. Uh, yeah, anything to support local food, know what I mean? I definitely do. Though that's not the only thing you do in the name of Good Eats, obviously. Well, true. I also host Eating Matters every Wednesday at 5 p.m. where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. Be sure to tune in. All right, gotta get the plug in there, I get it. Yep, I'm hashtag shameless. You know what else you can do to support the local food community, right? Well, yeah. Make a donation to Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. That's right. And I gotta call you out on the whole local thing. What do you mean? Well, The Farm Report, A Taste of the Past, Japan Eats. Those are shows that take you around the country and the world. I'll give you that. So how can listeners give their support? It's pretty easy. Just go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the big red heart in the top right corner. It's pretty easy from there. Thanks. Today's program is brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit cane5.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Consider the oyster. Yes, MFK Fisher's beautiful ode to the bivalve. She called it a most delicate and enigmatic of foods, the oyster. And it's now considered a most sustainable food. Stay tuned and you'll find out. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And yes, indeed, MFK Fisher, her short little ode to the oyster, it has some of the most beautiful prose, very poetic. Um, And you learn a lot about oysters as well from that book. There are several books written about the oyster and about the history of the oyster. And, in fact, Mark Kurlansky wrote Big Oyster, History on the Half Shell. And in it, he wrote that when Henry Hudson entered New York Harbor in 1609, he had to navigate around 220,000 acres of oyster reefs. 
which had sustained the local Lenape people for generations. The pristine, nutrient-rich estuary with oysters at the base hosted thousands of associated species and has since been noted as one of the most biologically productive, diverse, and dynamic environments on the planet. Well, the immigrants came, and being no strangers to the bivalves, the Dutch ate the oysters, the English ate oysters, and all of them took advantage of this mother load. By the late 18th century, technology made it easier to dredge and harvest a lot of oysters quickly. Eventually, the beds were overfished, and with the population boom, cholera, typhoid, and pollution set in. It was then that oyster men perfected the art of transplanting and then cultivating oyster seed in clean waters, like the Great South Bay off New York's Long Island, providing a surplus of oysters. 1860 became the golden age of oysters. Approximately 12 million oysters were sold in New York markets, and by the 1880s, by 1880 itself, the area's oyster beds were producing 700 million a year, and they were shipped as far as the West Coast. Rich and poor, everyone was eating them in oyster cellars, saloons, cafes, stands. In fact, they were the first New York street food, cheap and fast, the ultimate fast food. But it was hard to keep up with the demand, and with it, the overpopulation, the pollution, major storms. Supply dwindled as prices soared. Hmm, so much for cheap street food. Well, today, oyster farms account for 95% of all oyster consumption and have a minimal negative impact on their ecosystems. On and there are even nonprofit projects devoted to cultivating oysters as a way to improve water quality. And since so many oysters are farmed, there's little danger of overfishing. To learn more about this and get a first-hand glimpse into the history and business of oyster farming, our assistant Kat Johnson took a trip out to the Blue Island Oyster Farm in the Great South Bay of New York. <laughs> Ten years ago, we uh, developed Blue Island Oyster Farm, and what was so exciting about being 60 miles from New York City is that we were able to bring numerous chefs from Manhattan out to visit our farm. And when they came out, they got a real deep education of what it really means to be uh, farm to table. This is Chris Quartuccio, and he's been in the oyster business for over 20 years. When I decided to do some digging into the history of oyster farming in the Great South Bay, I knew Chris was the guy to talk to, so I grabbed an early train out of Jamaica and headed east to West Saville to meet with him. If you look for West Saville on a map, you can find it due north of Fire Island's Cherry Grove, straight across the Great South Bay. I grew up in Saville. I was born here in Saville, and Saville is a large shellfish community, or at least it was back in the 60s and 70s. So I started digging clams on the Great South Bay when I was 12 years old. And I dug clams with probably a few other thousand people who were employed on the Great South Bay through, through middle school, high school, and college. And then after I got out of college, I was working in the city in the fashion industry uh, up until the time I was 30 years old. And it was at that point I felt I needed to make a career change. So the only other thing I knew how to do was to dig clams. So at that point, I bought a boat and... 
I drove from Manhattan out to Sable, and I dug clams, and I brought them back into Manhattan, and uh, I started selling them to restaurants. Next, Chris branched out from clam digging to oyster diving. And I was an oyster diver for several years, getting this business off the ground. And then 10 years ago, we decided to open up an oyster farm in the Great South Bay. And prior to us opening an oyster bar in the Great South Bay, uh, there was no oyster industry in this bay for decades. The question is, where did it go? In the late 19th and early 20th century, Great South Bay's oyster industry was booming. And it was around that time that the world-famous Blue Point was born. What happened was, in 1815, a man by the name of Joseph Avery, who lived and harvested shellfish in Blue Point, Long Island, shipped the first load of oysters into New York. And the customers in there really liked them. They loved them. They kept asking for more and more Blue Points. And over the years, that industry here in the Great South Bay exploded so we had a thriving oyster industry here. It employed thousands of people, not just people who worked on the bay, but we had to have boat builders. Uh, back then in the 1800s, they didn't have cardboard boxes. Everything was shipped in wood barrels. So we had barrel-making companies here. We had sail-making companies here. We had to make sails for, uh, for the oyster dredges. There were companies that made dredges for the oyster companies. A lot of the oysters were hand-harvested using tongs. So a lot of people made a living off of the Great South Bay from the oyster industry. And the devastation of the oyster industry took place in 1938 when we had the hurricane known as the Long Island Express that came through that actually killed 600 people um, from that hurricane, um, but also killed the oyster industry in the Great South Bay. It created five or six inlets through Fire Island and increased the salinity of the bay. With the increase of the salinity, it allowed predators like oyster drills and starfish to thrive in the eastern part of our bay. So what happened was they wiped out the seed beds. And we didn't have hatcheries and nurseries like we do today. So if we didn't have any seed, you wouldn't have an oyster industry. And it also silted over right after that hurricane a lot of the mature beds were silted over. So pretty much by 1940, the oyster industry in the Great South Bay was finished. So this is where the history of oyster farming in the Great South Bay gets interesting. Again, this is the body of water that first produced the world-famous Blue Point, which was essentially wiped out after the hurricane. So in 1912, a law, a New York State law, went into effect to protect the oyster farmers and the consumers of the Blue Point oysters. And it states that the only oysters that can be marketed, branded, or sold as a Blue Point oyster are oysters that are cultivated in the Great South Bay. And that law is still on the books today. But if there was no oyster industry in the Great South Bay for decades, then that means there were no more Blue Points. But Blue Points have remained one of the most popular oysters for decades and didn't disappear from menus. So what's going on here? Now, what happened in 1938, the entire Blue Point oyster industry was devastated. So there was no longer Blue Point oysters. There were no oyster farmers to protect. So what happened was in Connecticut and other parts of the country, there were opportunists 
and they started labeling their oysters blue points because people around the country still were asking for blue points. So the name has actually migrated over to Connecticut and oysters from Connecticut are now being called blue points. But Connecticut oysters never were and are not now and never will be blue point oysters. It actually is a form of uh, menu misrepresentation and consumer fraud to call a Connecticut oyster a blue point. Although the blue point population never recovered, another shellfish did. After 1938, the wild population of oysters never ever came back. But what did come back was the clamming industry. For some reason, clams started to thrive, and we, we got huge sets of clams here in the Great South Bay in the 60s and 70s. And once again, we had thousands of baymen working the Great South Bay digging clams. At one point in the 1970s, 75% of the hard-shell clams consumed in the United States were harvested here in the Great South Bay. There were other factors that contributed to the long oyster drought, not just in the Great South Bay, but across the country. Demand just wasn't there. And the other thing that changed with uh, oysters being consumed in the United States is that oyster consumption was really, really popular in the late 1800s to early 1900s. You know, some some families would consume oysters three nights a week as a form of protein. So what happened was, after 1938, and we had the hurricane and World War II, and the price of oysters started to creep up. They weren't really inexpensive anymore as they were in the 1800s. Areas started to become over-harvested. Oysters became out of fashion. People just weren't consuming oysters like they were. So there was a whole generation... And I would like to label that generation as the uh, baby boomers. I would say it was the baby boomers who really lost interest in consuming oysters this entire generation. As we entered the 1980s, taste buds started to change, and Chris remembers it well. If you go back to the late 80s, you know, what became really popular? Sushi started to become popular. So you had this whole young generation who were now being exposed to eating raw fish. And even myself, back in the 1980s, I thought it was very unusual and bizarre to consume raw fish. It just wasn't done in my family. I didn't know anyone who consumed raw fish. So you had this whole new generation who fall in love with eating adventurous sushi, sea urchin. It became very adventurous. So... I would say it was the sushi craze that started to uh, get people turned on to consuming oysters once again. So it seemed oysters were poised for a comeback, but the stage wasn't quite set for the reemergence of the oyster farming industry. I tell people if I were to have started this business in 1980, I probably wouldn't be in business today because I probably would have failed. In the Long Island Sound in 1999, we had an oyster disease that came through and it wiped out the entire population of wild oysters in the Long Island Sound. Other areas 
of the United States in the Northeast started to fail. Rhode Island at one time in the late 90s was very, very productive with wild oysters. Massachusetts had wild oysters. Delaware Bay had wild oysters. And all the way down the Chesapeake and James River, there were a lot of wild oysters coming from those areas. So the price for oysters back in the, in the mid-90s, late-90s, they were very, very inexpensive. So farm-raising oysters just wasn't an option because you had to compete against these low-priced wild oysters. And every oyster farmer needs to get a certain price for their oysters. If they can't get that price, they can't stay in business. At that time, there was no way you could grow oysters and to turn a profit. But after we had these crop failures in the Northeast, the price of oysters quadrupled. So now, oyster farmers not only were they able to get the price they needed to turn a profit, they also had a home for their oysters. There was a huge demand. They didn't have to compete against all these fabulous, they really were very, very good quality wild oysters coming from the Northeast. The market was all theirs. So I strongly believe if it was not for the crop failures in the late 90s, uh, we wouldn't, oyster farming would not be as strong as it is today. This brings us back to how Chris started oyster farming. He began diving for oysters in the late 90s and hand-delivering them to restaurants who were giving adventurous eaters what they wanted, oysters on the half shell. Uh, one of the reasons why we were able to be successful was because the way we distributed the oysters. Typically, people who tried to engage in oyster farming in the Gray South Bay, if they were successful producing any product at all, they were selling it directly to wholesalers here on Long Island. And then those wholesalers would sell them to wholesalers in New York City. And then it might go to a seafood distributor who would then sell it to a restaurant. What we were doing was we were producing the oyster and then delivering it directly to restaurants in Manhattan. So our profit margins were enormous and it allowed us to grow oysters in the Gray South Bay and make a profit. Most people thought it was impossible to grow oysters in the Gray South Bay, but we decided to do exactly what the old timers did. Instead of planting oysters in the middle of the bay or the eastern part of the bay, we were able to obtain a piece of property that was very, very close to the Fire Island Inlet, which is in the western part of the Great South Bay. And the oysters grow very quick there, and they grow very fat and plump. So we actually pioneered modern oyster farming in the Great South Bay, and that was in 2004. Not only has Blue Island Oyster Farm thrived and continued to expand, but it's actually helping the ecosystem and potentially bringing back the wild oyster population to Great South Bay. Oyster farming is, is probably one of the only farms that actually, or farming activity, that actually has a positive impact on the environment. These oysters that are in these farms, they're densely populated, and when they spawn, there's a good chance fertilization will take place, and we have seen it in different parts of the country where oyster farming 
has released spawn into the water, and now wild oyster reefs have developed. There were no wild occurring oysters in that area, but now there's a complete uh, oyster population and even an industry revolving around it. A good example is the Damariscotta River in Maine. There weren't any wild oysters in that river uh, in the mid-90s, and now there's numerous oyster farmers working out of Damariscotta River in Maine. And as a result, there are wild oyster reefs, and there are baymen up there who make a living just harvesting oysters from that, those natural reefs. If it were not for the oyster farmers, those reefs weren't be, wouldn't be there. And, of course, the other thing oyster farming does is it puts a lot of filter feeders in the water. So these oysters are filtering thousands of gallons of water every day, they're reducing the nitrogen in the water, and they're also reducing the algae blooms, which is good for the entire uh, ecosystem of any bay estuary. So oyster farming is good for the environment, and the shellfish are harvested in a sustainable way. But what about the taste? Does a farmed oyster really taste as good as its wild counterpart? Farm-raised oysters and wild oysters, if they're grown in the same area, will have the same exact taste profile. They're the same species. Oysters take on different flavors when they're grown in different bodies of water. For example, we have wild oysters that we harvest from the North Shore of Long Island. Very, very different environment than what we have on the South Shore in the Great South Bay. There's a different salinity, there's different currents. It's a different environment. There's different types of algae, phytoplankton, and diatoms that these oysters are feeding on. So those oysters are going to have one kind of flavor. And one of the distinctive flavors of a North Shore Long Island Sound oyster is it has a really awesome mineral finish. Very, very distinctive. Now, on the South Shore, what made the Blue Point oysters uh, so distinctive and, and, and so wonderful is that they have vegetal notes that are very distinctive, that don't taste like any other oysters. After hearing about the long history of oysters in the area, I was ready to see a modern farm in action for myself. So Chris gave me the grand tour of Blue Island's hatchery and nursery. But first, I learned that there was more than just oyster history beneath our feet. What's fascinating about the piece of property here in West Sable that we have our production facility on and corporate offices is that during World War I, this property was a naval base. And my great-grandfather, who was from Manhattan, was actually stationed here during World War I. And just by chance, uh, we happened to, uh, seven years ago, move our operation right onto the same piece of property where this, uh, it was Section 5, uh, 3rd Naval District was where he was stationed. And because uh, we're right here on uh, Green Harbor here, and uh, that's where the naval base was, which is uh, kind of fascinating. His commanding officer was, um, was a Roosevelt, and uh, he was cousins of uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Kind of fascinating. That's cool. That's very <laughs> yeah. cool. Yeah. We walked into a room filled with tanks and conicals, and then went over to a corner where oysters sat in a shallow container of water. We're trying to recreate what happens out in the wild. So we have about 60 oysters in the tanks here, and we don't know which ones are males and which ones are females. So what we do here is what happens in the wild. We slowly raise the temperature, which is what happens out in the wild, 
We feed them a lot of algae. We're trying to fatten them up. We're conditioning for spawning. So occasionally we'll uh, open a couple of them up and see if there's any spawn in them. Because when we get these to release their spawn, we want them to be fully loaded. And the way we get them to release their spawn is we take one of the oysters. And we don't know if these are male or female. And we'll take the spawn and we'll spread it all over the tank. Considering these are filter feeders, they actually pump 50 gallons of water a day. Just for example, say what we put in here was eggs, okay? The male oysters are pumping in a lot of water. They're pumping the eggs into their body. They detect there's eggs in the water. So what the males do is they'll release their sperm. That's how we get them to release, the, the, release their, uh, their spawn. So now there's a lot of sperm in the water. And then the female oysters will pump water and sperm into their body, and they detect the sperm in the water. And then the females will release their eggs. So now you have the males and females releasing their eggs and sperm into the water. This is exactly what happens on a wild oyster bed. The only thing that happens here that's different is that this is a contained environment. Our water is sanitized here. We feed it algae. We create the perfect environment for them. So in the wild, you know, you're lucky if you get one or two oysters that actually survive from a spawning. Here, on a spawn, you know, we can get hundreds of thousands of oysters out of it. So what we're trying to do here is just replicate what happens out in the wild but get a much higher success rate. This process hasn't really been around for that long. Oyster hatchery started in the early 1960s, and it was actually in this location here where uh, one of the most successful uh, companies, the Blue Point Oyster Company, actually developed the techniques for uh, oyster hatcheries and, and nurseries as we know it today. Not only do oyster hatcheries make farming more efficient and cost-effective, but they can also help protect against the decimation of wild populations in the face of storms like the Long Island Express in 1938 or, more recently, Hurricane Sandy. Oyster farming has really boomed in the past 10 years. There's oyster farms all along the Northeast. And one of the biggest challenges now for oyster farmers is acquiring new land to grow oysters. There's a lot of areas that just aren't suitable for growing oysters. And there is a problem with residents who have waterfront property and they don't want oyster farmers or oyster farmer gear in their backyard looking out their window. So it's becoming tight, you know, it's, it's becoming more and more difficult for people who want to enter this business to acquire underwater land. And it is ch a challenge to get a lease and the permits. Here in New York, it can be up to two years from the time you apply for a oyster aquaculture permit to the time you could actually start growing oysters. You know, it seems like the uh, demand is there. Visiting Blue Island Oyster Farm, seeing its oysters in all stages of life, and experiencing the area that produced the original Blue Point is a treat for any oyster lover. Luckily, you can make the visit yourself. It's just a short train ride from New York City. So what we decided to do two years ago was to open it up to the public. So now, every weekend, we do tours at our farm from 9.30 to 1, and we do evening tours as well from 5 to 8.30. 
we kayak the oyster farm. We take a long kayak trip up into the, the marshlands. Uh, we provided lobster roll lunch, and we shuck lots of clams and oysters for everyone. And I always tell everyone when they come out to our farm that they'll never look at oysters the same way again. We're going to be talking to Kat Johnson about her trip out to Blue Ice, Blue Island Oyster Farm when we come back from a brief break. So stay tuned. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. We're back, and I have with me in the studio my assistant, Kat Johnson, who did that wonderful piece on oysters. Oh, so much information, Kat. Thanks for going out there and doing that. So tell me about this. What What was your reaction when you went out there? Yeah, um, first of all, thanks to Chris for having me out there. Um, I found out about Blue Island. Um, I took a trip with um, work once, and we went to the farm, which is actually where you know their um, oysters mature. And they had this really cool floating dock, and we got to hang out there for a day in the summer, eat a lot of oysters, as he describes in the way you can visit. Um, but this time I got to see the hatchery and the nursery, um, so their production facilities, and Chris also gave me a short tour of the area. So I got to see, actually, Joseph Avery's house, which is still there. It was built in 1812, and then in 1815 is when he um harvested the first Blue Point. Um, we also saw Jacob Ocker's house, who founded the Blue Point's company. And now, that, now, what's special about about his about Ocker's house? Yes, his house is really, really cool because, um, as Chris pointed out, there are no hills on Long Island. It's very flat. But Jacob Ocker's house is built on a hill, which is made out of oyster shells. Amazing. They basically piled them all up, and then he decided to build his house there. Great byproduct. Yes. <laughs> they used to pave roads with them, so clearly oyster shells were used for a lot more than just building more reefs right and then they've recycled them you were explaining to me um, during the break they've recycled a lot of these shells grind them up into the oyster farming themselves right? yes so the he touched on the the hatch the spawning process um they take the spawn and um, once they have the oyster larvae they put them in um, conicals to um, emulate the way the water column would work in the wild in the bay and then they take the oyster shells, grind them up very finely, put that on a hard surface so that when the larvae are big enough to grow the foot, they have something hard to grab onto. Because in the wild, they would prefer to actually grab onto an oyster shell. Right. So about how old are the oysters that we generally find on our plate? So they're harvesting them at about, um, I guess, three to four years old. Three, I think, is the minimum that you can harvest an oyster. Mm -hmm. That's when it's uh, officially an adult. So that's those nice, small, but plump ones that you're going to find on your plate. Um, but, you know, you can 
sometimes they're, they're a little bit bigger, four to five years would probably yeah. be the max. Huh. Well, now, all this um, this species that we've been talking about is the Cassistrea virginica, which is the East Coast oyster. And, and as Chris explained, uh, all of those different oysters from the East Coast are, are basically genetically the same animal the same same being but the west coast is you know is a little bit different and yet we were shipping them interesting in the the 1860s we were shipping them out to the west coast and and chris explained that that also provided another byproduct business barrel makers because they had to put them in all those barrels and old pictures that you find um of early new york city uh, show just the street lined with a bunch of old barrels and people standing over the barrels eating oysters. There's a shucker right there. And as I said, that was the cheap street food. And they just stood over the barrels and grabbed some oysters and and shucked them and had a lunch. Right. And what's also cool is, so when Joseph Avery started bringing his oysters, the Blue Points, to New York, he originally was, you know, sailing. They were coming by boat. And then later, you know, as you're talking about the West Coast shipment, then they would go by train. And Chris also told me that a lot that the Long Island Railroad on the South Shore has a lot to do with transporting not only oysters but clams and seafood, mm-hmm. and so that was kind of interesting too. That not only um, did like the physical oyster shell help kind of pave roads, but like metaphorically, oysters kind of helped pave Build the railroad. Yeah, <laughs> right. which is really cool. Yeah. Oh, I think that's amazing. Um, and we we made some mention to um, the sustainability and the project to to clean waters and you got a lot of information about a particular program that's happening yes so um as you're talking about the quote at the beginning um about how how full the har- new york harbor was with oysters when the you know the um when henry hudson came through mm-hmm. um billion oyster project is some uh, an organization in new york that's trying to kind of get back to that point um because oysters you know, oyster reefs are such a big deal in um, harbor areas and, and bays. They, they kind of act the same way a coral reef would in the ocean for areas like this. So they're they're aiming to get a billion oysters back in the New York Harbor by, I think, 2030, just because it not only um, are they great to eat, they are the reefs sustain other seafood, uh, other sea life. And um, also it helps attenuate waves. So it would actually just the overall health of the harbor would be helped if we had an, a thriving oyster population mm. here and, again. And keeps the water clean as well. They have yes. a filtering system. Filter feeders, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, it's just, I'm, I'm so glad you went out there to, to do that show because there's so, I mean, it's, it's one thing to talk about it and read about it and then, you know, regurgitate a lot of information that, that you can find. But it's another thing to see it happening, you know, firsthand. And I just, I think that's terrific. He was talking, um, you asked him the question about taste, because I think that's what everyone is sort of concerned about. Ooh, a farmed oyster? Wow, is that any good? You know, because we've all heard about the horror stories of a lot of, you know, farmed fishes, of Mm -hmm. salmon in particular, that has been cleaned up over the years um, due to a lot of great watchdog groups. Um, And so he, he affirmed the fact that the oysters... You know, taste the same whether they're farmed or they're wild because they're reproducing all those same water motions and, and everything that's happening. Big question: Have you eaten oysters out at Blue Island Oyster Farm? Yes, I have. <laughs> um, when I went to the farm the first time, we got to literally sit on the the dock they built on right by the the farms, the oyster beds. And just pop them open right out of the water and eat them, and like that's probably the best way to eat an oyster oh, yeah. anyway. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> you know. Just out of the water, it, they're they're delicious. And you know, Chris is the only person who officially is 
is harvest growing and harvesting blue point oysters. So if that, that's what you're going for, he's like the guy to go to. Except he doesn't call them blue point. He calls them blue. The naked cowboy. The oyster. naked cowboy. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yes. That's one of the, one of the oysters he grows. He ha- yeah. He's, and he's also selling them from other, um, other areas. I think he also has um, one species called blue Island oyster or, um, but it's anything but Blue Point specifically because that you know that's not around, right? Well, no, he he officially is the only person really growing true Blue Points because they're legally supposed to be grown in the Great South Bay, right? And he's the only uh, farmer currently doing that. Oh, that's great. <laughs> well, I, I mean, oysters are great no matter where you find them and yeah. how you and how you eat them. But we are so happy to be able to have the Blue Island Oyster Farm in our midst <laughs> and get the great oysters. And being summertime that we're recording this, and it's a month with no R in it, <laughs> I don't think that anyone ascribes to that anymore. I think I they think eat so. them no matter when. Get well, them whenever you can take them. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, so thanks again to Kat Johnson for going out to Blue Island. Thank Oyster you. Farm. And thanks to Chris for um, that great hosting, the job he did in, in explaining everything. Really articulate man, knows his business. Right. And thank you for listening to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.